0: Hey everyone, this is Kabane the Christian. Today we're going to be talking about the notion of apophatic theology in the orthodox tradition. For those who aren't aware, apophatic theology is the practice of theology whereby one speaks of God in his essence in negations rather than positive predicates. Within the Orthodox tradition, this is rooted in the idea that when speaking of the essence of God, the only way in which one can speak accurately of God in his essence is to speak in negations. So we might think of the divine energies which are revealed by the persons as actualizations or expressions of that capacity which is intrinsic to the common divine essence. We might think of them as setting boundaries around God such that certain ideas are clearly seen to be inappropriate to God. And since the notion of non-existence is a black or white thing, in other words, there, is no, there are no layers to non-existence, there's no depth to non-existence, we can speak in an absolute negation with respect to those things which are seen to be corrupt. And the reason we cannot speak in similar absolute terms when talking about the essence with positive predications is because every positive quality of God is infinitely layered according to the mode of its revelation through the operations. And we'll be talking about the reason why the predicates that we do make of God are not predicates, strictly speaking of the essence but rather, are predicates known through the divine energies? Now, predicate in this context, I mean property, quality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm not using it as a special technical term. Now, I want to keep the housekeeping short here, but I do want to mention that the link below does have a link to my Patreon, and there are three tiers: and uh, there's a $5 tier, a donation tier, a $10 tier, and a $20 tier. You'll see the details in the Patreon link itself. I do wanna say that I feel, I, while I do feel very, very tacky asking for donations of any kind, I don't like doing it. Uh, your contributions are integral to the viability of this channel as a substantial focus of my life. And that includes not just uploading videos, but it includes engaging with people, not just on YouTube, but on a personal level, having met on YouTube. It includes kind of dialogues and debates that are being planned uh, in relation to these YouTube videos and the arguments set forth therein. Uh, This was not something that I decided to do on a whim. Uh, It's not something that I decided to do just out of a uh, a vague desire to make a quick buck. Uh, this is something that actually has been planned in one form or another for a very long time. Uh, there have been a number of people who have uh, encouraged me to take this particular route, to invest this amount of time in my channel, to use Patreon to help me invest that time in my channel in order to you know, uh, to meet the cost of living um, and allocate the amount of time I need to, to the channel while meeting the cost of living. Um, Uh, and their encouragement has been really instrumental and very helpful for me. So they, um, uh, I wanna just say thank you to those who have been involved. Um, Your partnership, your encouragement, and your advice has been uh, absolutely essential in going forward on this project. And I also ask that whether or not you contribute to my Patreon, and please don't contribute if you're not financially able. If If you're very strained financially, do not contribute, please. Now, whether you do or not contribute, I do ask that everybody, pray for me and pray for this channel because as i do want to talk about in the coming weeks and months and years i want to talk about it on a more personal level about prayer and a relationship with god i absolutely believe that prayer works and that without it we're all doomed so your prayers are crucial to my success on this in this medium Um, and actually i'm hoping to Get some people well, we'll talk about that another time um <clears throat> i do want to announce kind of in relation to that uh the first premium content will be coming next week uh and that is an interview with none other than my brother now if you think that's kind of a cheap trick uh, uh i think you're, you'll be very impressed by what he has to say um he's a very impressive kid uh, he's only a few years. I anybody he's very impressive guy. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, I'm also planning to interview a scholar called Jared Goff, who is a theologian and an historian of the medieval Trinitarian controversies. Uh, specifically, he's written a book on the Trinitarian theology of Bonaventure, and he has a lot of very interesting thoughts on how this relates to the Orthodox critique of the Filioque and how this relates to the ongoing dialogue between Orthodox and Catholics, a dialogue which, in both his and my opinion, cannot be conducted at the expense of truth. So I think you'll enjoy the interview with my brother because uh, it is will be concerning his recent return to the Christian faith um, uh, after... I think about an eight, seven, eight year absence, he has returned to the Christian faith after a very rigorous intellectual journey. Um, And I think what he has to say will provide you with new ways of thinking about what you might consider to be old issues. And it'll give you an example of what it looks like to rigorously and carefully construct a view of the world based on a process of study, logic and reason. So I'm very excited for that. I hope you're looking forward to it. And uh, the full interview will be available only to premium subscribers. That is $10 and up, but a portion of the interview will be available for free. Um, So with that said, uh, I spent more time than I would have liked on housekeeping. Please forgive me. Um, I want to talk about the issue at hand today, which is what apophatic theology is and what apophatic theology is isn't now this is uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek because this is the fundamental question that apophatic theology purports to address the is and isn't question and as i mentioned is and isn't aren't exactly opposite in relation to each other we can speak of god in negative terms because non-existence negation is such a simple or content-free sort of concept Whereas existence is infinitely rich and deep, you can always be drawing out new qualities of existence, which frame the whole in a new way. So one can take that kind of relation and apply it to the meta-level debate about apophatic theology itself. Many people mean different things by apophatic theology. Many people mean different things when they say orthodoxy is essentially apophatic. Uh, Many people mean different things when they critique apophatic theology and say uh, apophatic theology isn't true at all, it's bogus. So what I wanna do uh, in part is be very careful to precisely explain what is meant by apophatic theology in the orthodox tradition, of course, as I interpret it, um, and what is not meant by that because there are a lot of serious questions that people have about apophatic theology. For example, well, isn't God love? Is it really true that we can't make positive predications of God? Aren't there, aren't there? Doesn't God have plenty of qualities that are revealed to us in Scripture? Many of these questions are very important. They need to be answered, and I think they can be answered uh, with relative simplicity when we understand the inner logic of the apophatic approach to theology in the Orthodox Church. So, Orthodoxy and the Apophatic. Now it's important to note that apophatic theology as an approach is not actually unique to Orthodoxy. It does exist outside of the canonical boundaries of the Orthodox Church. Uh, Thomas Aquinas speaks of the role that negations play in relation to our discussion of God. Uh, he speaks of the um, uh, more precise role that negations play in relation to God because of what it means for God to exist in his simplicity. Um, This is related to Aquinas' construction of the doctrine of analogy, which we're not going to get into at this point, but which has significant differences with the orthodox tradition and actually with many of his own Western compatriots. Uh, But orthodoxy is very often thought to have a a distinct relationship with the apophatic. In fact, in the 20th century, uh, going back to some roots in the 19th century, but particularly in the 20th century, after the Russian emigre theologians moved from the uh, newly crystallized Soviet Union into Western theological schools, apophatic theology was seen by some as the distinct marker of what makes the Orthodox tradition the Orthodox tradition. That is, if one lined up all of the differences in approach and in substance between Eastern and Western Christianity and Eastern and Roman Catholic Christianity. The unifying principle, which explained why these two traditions were different, was the notion of apophatic theology. Uh, Very often this was connected to a critique of scholasticism. Scholasticism is not in itself a particular theological interpretation of christianity scholasticism in this context refers instead to an approach to theology it refers to a way of doing theology rather than the doctrinal content of the theology itself and in the 20th century Orthodoxy was contrasted very sharply with the scholastic tradition as it prevailed not only in Catholicism, but also in Protestantism. There are a series of reformed scholastics. And Orthodoxy is said to be more mystical in contrast with the rationalistic, uh, intellectually focused Scholastic West. And this rejection in certain ways of the intellectual or rational approach to theology as having a highly significant role in the life of the church is connected to the notion of the supremacy of the apophatic. Because if one can't make positive predications of God in a particularly significant way, well, then the whole scholastic project seems to collapse in on itself. Probably the most influential book in relation to this thesis, though it's promoted in a lot of other literature, and you can see it promoted in a much more crude way in the writings of Father John Romanides. But the most influential book in constructing this approach is Vladimir Lasky's Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church. Now, I wanna be absolutely clear that Vladimir Lasky was a talented and gifted Orthodox theologian. Um, he is an essential exponent of the tradition. Uh, mystical Theology of the Eastern Church Remains one of the most important books that I've ever read, theologically speaking, and there are vast riches that can be mined from it. Uh, I remember a friend of mine, as she was converting from Calvinism to Orthodoxy, she felt kind of, you know, depressed about because um, she was convinced Orthodoxy was true. Even so, as she loved, you know, her Calvinistic background. Um, you know, it was familiar uh, and. She said that reading Losky's Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church was the first thing which really excited her about becoming an Orthodox Christian. So I have uh, enormous amounts of praise for this wonderful book. Nevertheless, I do think that it has certain flaws and that the flaws in this book and in Losky's approach more generally, uh, basically correspond to the criticisms that I'm going to make of Uh, this certain interpretation of the significance of the apophatic. Now, here's a quotation that we have all heard a lot. He who prays truly is a true theologian. Uh, The interesting thing here is that this this was written or spoken by Evagrius, and Evagrius, whose sanctity I'm not contesting, is not canonized as a saint. And that's true for a reason. He had a very deficient theology that was rooted in an originist metaphysic. Now, whether or not Origen actually believed in it, uh, in originist metaphysic, I'm not commenting on that here. Evagrius believed in this, what we call originist metaphysic. A metaphysic which is uh, profoundly destructive to the holistic um, quality of Christian theology. I'm not going to get into the details of that, uh, but I will just say that it's a kind of approach that is condemned at the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Again, not to contest his sanctity, he lived before the Fifth Council, and of course, culpability is always the key thing here. Um, But it's ironic that the very quotation, which is often cited in defense of the rejection or almost rejection of rational, intellectual, systematic theology, that they were spoken or written by someone who was in most need of that systematic, articulate, reasoned theology. Now, in one sense, of course, Evagrius is correct. Maximus the Confessor says in another place, uh, theology without prayer is the theology of demons. And there's a way in which Evagrius is completely correct. Uh, theolo- theology can mean deep and profound knowledge of God, and this doesn't necessarily correspond with the capacity to articulate the church's doctrines in any kind of cataphatic and systematic way. Nevertheless, it seems to me, and I think that Florovsky, uh, Dmitrius Stenloei, um many luminaries of the Orthodox tradition, uh, it seems to me that the role of reason in the construction of systematic theology uh, has a exalted place in the history of the church that cannot merely be assimilated to the ascetic life so this isn't just you know cabane saying it um it's impossible to read the history of the orthodox church in the 20th century and kind of send the academic tradition of orthodoxy outside the camp and what i mean by that is the great academic theologians who expounded Orthodox tradition in the 20th century were interconnected in deep and rich ways with the ascetic saints who are universally revered in the Orthodox world today. Sometimes you hear a particular interpretation of our history in the last century where kind of the Academy is called it's called academic theology, and that's not real theology. And you know they're kind of on shaky ground for a whole host of reasons, both in terms of approach and in terms of specific things they believe. Maybe it's because of their ecumenism, which I'm not commenting on here. Uh, but academic theology is generally separated from what is seen to be the heart of the orthodox tradition in the 20th century, which is people like Elder Joseph the Hesychast, people like St. Sophroni of Essex, uh, people like St. Saint Paisios, St. Saint Porphyrios. Um, all of these men represent the beating heart of orthodoxy, and while the academic theologians aren't necessarily condemned, uh, it is kind of assumed, maybe even non-verbally and non-consciously, that, you know, They're kind of on the outer rim of what it means to be orthodox. And when the ultimate history of Christ's church in the 20th century is written, they won't play a significant role. Uh, But actually, in the history of the orthodox tradition in the last century, the ascetic saints, who are in many cases canonized, were in contact with and engaged with the academic theologians, so-called, of the same period. Uh, St. Sophrony, I believe Sophrony of Essex has been canonized. I may be mistaken on that, but he's uh, the synod either has canonized him or plans to canonize him, but he's widely venerated as a saint um, and has been reputed for his ascetic uh, and, and sanctified life. Uh, St. Sophrony of Essex, uh, who is responsible for giving us the ascetic wisdom of St. Siloan the Athenite, had an extensive series of correspondences with Father George Florovsky, who was perhaps the most prolific academic theologian in the Orthodox tradition in the 20th century. For those who aren't familiar with him, he comes from what had Just become the Soviet Union. He comes to the West and to the United States, teaches at Western theological institutions, and he is responsible for the notion of neo patristic synthesis. Meaning, it is patristic in the sense that it is rooted in the tradition of the fathers, but it is a neo patristic synthesis in that it takes the theology of the fathers and it interprets them and applies them and extends their insights into questions which are in certain ways new, questions which were asked by the West first, but need to be given true and orthodox answers. Uh, It's not a mere repetition of the words of the past, rather it's a genuine and authentic development. In language, yes, but a development in terminology is always a development in understanding because when we're introspective, when we ourselves think through an issue, even if we're not speaking anything aloud, we are thinking through that issue in language. And so the development of theology terminologically entails and is coextensive with a development of theology in genuine understanding. Uh, this is something also uh, expressed by St. Vincent of Laren's, a Uh, who wrote the Commonatorium? he is responsible for the famous threefold criteria of Orthodox and Catholic faith, that is, must be universal, must have antiquity, and it must have ubiquitous consent. And he writes the commonatorium to explain, with historical examples, how that rule of faith is applied, both in the history of the church and in his own day concretely but what is so significant for our purposes here is that St. Vincent, in this very context, in the very context wherein he emphasizes the absolute need to be faithful to the tradition of the fathers who came before, he speaks of the necessity, not the permissibility, mind you, but the absolute necessity of doctrinal development for the church to be what it is. Now, doctrinal development means that in new ages, the church teases out, the implicit notions in the articulate theological formulations of earlier ages. Now, it's an essential principle of logic that you cannot affirm implicitly what you deny explicitly. And it's that principle which I would appeal to in dialoguing with other traditions who might appeal to doctrinal development in order to try to justify their apparent or their claim to continuity with the undivided church of the first millennium, most particularly and obviously Roman Catholicism. But the central point here is that St. Vincent believes that there is a development in understanding that takes place through the history of the church that this development in understanding occurs in and through the use of systematic and rational formulae. Though that's it's neither the beginning nor the end of the story. It bears a particular relation to the church's whole deposit. Um, and St. Vincent does not separate this approach to theology from the ascetic approach to theology. And indeed, the ascetic life does not guarantee a person the capacity to accurately or with uh, Uh, accurately give systematic formulations. And St. Sophronia of Essex speaks of this. He says a church father, in the sense that we usually mean the term, is one who not only is a saint, not only lives a holy life, but is one who has a deep and profound rational comprehension of the church's tradition. And these are the kinds of people who the Fifth Ecumenical Council names and selects as church fathers. Uh, we, of course, call many kinds of saints fathers. There's the desert fathers. There's the ascetic fathers. But in the sense St. Zephroni is using, he's referring to these theological fathers uh, to whom we look when we uh, seek to formulate our theology in a precise fashion. Father George Florowski sees this sanctification of the, re- of the human faculty of reason and the entrance into the mystery of Christ by that same reason as a function of the incarnation. Because in the incarnation, the beloved son takes on not only a human body, but a human mind. And in taking on a human mind, he takes on and sanctifies every capacity of that mind, including the capacity to reason through a question in a systematic way. To reason through a question in a systematic way is a unique way of glorifying God. All glory comes from God and all existence is constituted as an imprint of that glory. And the imprint of that glory is deified by coming to reflect the glory of which it is an imprint. And to reason reason through a theological question is a particular way of engraving that imprint into your mind and soul. And thus, it is a particular way in which you might become disposed to receive the uncreated grace and glory of God. So the church, in its tradition, sees a significant role for reason and development and constructive, systematic ways of thinking. And I I say all this to emphasize the point that we should not assume that the mystical approach to theological reasoning has anything to do in principle with the unique relationship that apophatic theology has with the Orthodox Church. Nor should we assume that apophatic theology has much at all to do uh, with a critique of reason in the construction of theology. Now, of course, there are plenty of things reason can't do, and it needs to be critiqued in those senses Nevertheless, I think uh, in the Orthodox world today, the balance is slightly tilted towards a denigration of reason rather than an overexaltation of reason. And Lasky's, what I see as an imbalance here, uh, is exemplified by the use of the imagery of the divine darkness. Now for Lossky, The image of Moses entering into the divine darkness is the supreme embodiment of the orthodox approach to theology. Moses truly engages with the uncreated life of God. Yet to engage with that uncreated life is to enter into a kind of darkness, a darkness where all previous language and experience has no proper relation. Now, I don't think he reasoned that out consistently because uh, I, and he's, a, he's a very good theologian. Um, I don't think he can make that specific idea consistent with his whole system. And I may myself be oversimplifying it, um, but I'm drawing on Father Florovsky's uh, review of Lossky's Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church. Now, Florovsky had a tremendous amount of respect for Lovsky. Nevertheless, he did have uh, some critical comments to make on uh, uh, Lasky's book and the approach reflected therein. So uh, to summarize up on these points, uh, you can't separate the tradition of Orthodox saints in the 20th century from the academic tradition of Orthodox theology. Mention mentioned St. Sophrony of Essex, another one is St. Justin Popovic, who in addition to being a saint was an academic theologian who praised Florovsky and I believe Stanloi to the heavens. Uh, father Dimitri Stanloi was a complete was completely and, and thoroughly engaged with that whole theological conversation uh, going on in the orthodox and indeed the non-orthodox academic world yet Father Stanloi uh, was himself a saint he had during certain periods of his life the prayer of the heart and it is my understanding that he is going to be formally canonized within the next several years so he would be a church father in that sense that i mentioned earlier uh, Father Stanloi actually worked with the uh, Romanian ascetic elder, Father Arseny Boca, who was widely known inside and outside of Romania for his capacity to work miracles. So uh, contrary, contrary to the uh, maybe implicit narrative construction that I think you might see a lot of the times on the orthosphere, uh, academic theology is not a separate story in the past century from the history of the saints of the 20th century. It's intertwined and interwoven with it in all sorts of different ways. Now, in addition to that point, I want to emphasize that apophatic theology is not a negation of reason in principle, that the role of reason in constructive theology is appreciated not only by these recent theologians, but also by the fathers and doctors of the ancient and medieval church. So, How do we understand what we can and can't say about God and why we can and can't say these things about God? Well, I like to express it in a phrase called the ins and the omnis. Uh, The ins and the omnis refer to two distinct sets of divine qualities. They're two sets of words that we very often use to identify the kind of existence that god has and one of them pertains to the apophatic that is to the notion of negation in relation to god and the other pertains to affirmations or positive predicates positive qualities that we ascribe to god consider these negations okay now this is one of this is an example of why we should always be paying attention to the language that we're using very often we use closely related words we don't even realize that they're closely related. But if we contemplated the use of our language, we might see that the close relations of these words, the fact that they use an identical preposition uh, is actually a clue to the deep conceptual relation that each bears with each other. God is infinite, okay? We should always keep in mind, we are not saying that God is this thing called infinity. Right, infinity is not a quality like blueness or sweetness or uh, good smell. Infinity is not a quality. Infinity is a statement that whatever is being identified transcends every possible identified quality. Not contradicts, not undermines, but transcends. Oh, here's an important one. Incorporeal. God is incorporeal. So this has been the source of all kinds of trouble conceptually. It was the source of a great deal of trouble in my mind, and I've seen people having trouble with the same issues. Um, It's related to the Mormon or the Latter-day Saint critique of traditional Christianity. And I think understanding how we often misinterpret divine incorporeality helps us to see the way in which the God as identified by the fathers of the church is identical to the personal living god who is revealed in the pages of scripture both old and new testaments and the way to see this is to replace the word or the preposition in with trans instead of saying incorporeal the word a word which is kind of taken on the life of its own we should speak of god being transcorporeal, because incorporeality very often is taken in association with an implicit or explicit mental image where God is kind of an ethereal, gaseous substance. Uh, He is not a body because he's thinner than a body. You can't grab hold of him because there's not very much to grab hold of. And that mental image, which is very often implicit, but when you think about it, it's very deeply present, is profoundly misleading because that would indicate that God is not Uh, that God is not a body because he's less than a body. A body is too concrete to accurately signify the kind of life that God has. C.S. Lewis speaks of body in itself, body qua body, as being the idea of motion. A subject moves from A to B, and if he moves faster from A to B, he's more near being two places at the same time. So that which moves infinitely fast is present in all places, or in Lewis's words, so truly body that it is not body at all. Another way to see this is in terms of the biblical imagery of God as the rock of ages, or of God as infinitely glorious. The Hebrew word for glory, kavod, is very, very similar. It's almost identical, and it's related etymologically to the Hebrew word for weight. And God is infinitely glorious. It's for this reason that he's called the Rock of Ages. When the scripture says that Pharaoh hardened or lifted up his heart, in many cases, the literal translation of such a passage is not uh, hardened, but made glorious his heart or made heavy his heart. And that explains why in the song of the sea, we read that Pharaoh and his armies sunk like a stone to the bottom of the sea. The pun being they made themselves so glorious, so heavy, that they sunk right to the bottom of the sea and they drowned. Now, what does the idea of weight or glory in relation to weight have to do with the notion of body? Well, if you think of God as a rock of ages, a rock is not less concrete. It is not less thick than the human body. Rather, in relation to the human body, a rock is much thicker. In some ways, much more concrete. We might say that there's much more stuff there. That's why it's heavier to lift. God is the source of everything it means for anything to exist, all existence, perfectly subsists in his divine life in other words put crudely there's an infinite amount of stuff there god is infinitely heavy he is infinitely glorious there's no empty space in god and think of that in relation to what we've learned from contemporary physics most of the things that we regard as solid are actually constituted by empty space the world as it exists now is but a shadow of the world as it will exist in the world to come and the difference between the world as it exists now and the world as it exists in the world to come is that the divine glory will flow through every nook and cranny every inch of creation every bird and bee every tree and stone will be absolutely permeated with the divine glory there won't be any empty space yet Yet this permeation with divine glory isn't a permeation whereby there's no motion. It's a permeation whereby everything is in constant and dynamic relation to everything else. It is infinitely alive. So God is not less than body. God is more than body. And since God is more than body, when God makes himself manifest in what looks to be a body in the Old Testament, That's not a condescension to human weakness, except in the sense that he's creating some symbol which isn't really him. What they're seeing is God. It's just they're not seeing all that God is. Okay, the next in is incomprehensible. Well, this is very closely related to the notion of the apophatic. The incomprehensibility of God is something which exists across Trinitarian Christian traditions, and it shows that there's at least an idea of the apophatic, uh, not only in Orthodox and Catholicism, but even in the Reformed tradition. And incomprehensibility, as uh, per the previous two in-statements, is not a kind of quality which certain things have, and which is also had by God, rather, incomprehensibility is a statement that everything it means for a person to have knowledge of a subject, to have comprehensive knowledge about a subject, God utterly transcends the capacity to be comprehensively known because he is infinite and there is always more of him to know about. That's why, as I've said elsewhere, we won't be bored in the world to come because we will be infinitely exploring and Perpetuating into the world the unique and newly discovered splendors of God. God is incomprehensible or transcomprehensible because as we get to know Him better, we find that there is more to get to know. And finally, and very controversially, impassible. Now, like incorporeality, this has caused a lot of problems. People say that the impassibility of God, suggests a cold, detached God, a God detached from the suffering of the human family, a God who cannot be loved in the sense that the biblical God calls us to love him, or indeed cannot love in the sense that the biblical God loves. This has been the, uh, the basis in many ways for the movement within mostly evangelicalism towards theistic personalism. Uh, That is a form of theism that is critical of what they take to be classical theism as it's formulated by, they would usually cite Augustine and Aquinas. But part of my point here is that there's more to classical theism than Thomas Aquinas. Um, As brilliant as he was, he made mistakes. And there are other uh, classical theistic formulations which I think avoid the problems that are being critiqued. And the key point here is that impassibility is not a statement that God lacks emotion. Rather, it is a statement that God so transcends those things that we identify as emotional qualities, that he's so much more than what we identify in our subjective experience as emotions, that he is in perfect and total control, not only of the world, but also of himself. Another way to put it would be impassivity, not impassible, but impassive and passivity denotes that relation where you allow someone to do something to you or something is done to you. You neither cooperate nor reciprocate nor even resist. You are simply passive. You bear no relation at all to the change that is being wrought in your existence. This does not apply in any sense to God because God has no subconscious, as it were. He's perfectly self-aware of every aspect of his own existence. He is never passive in relation to the creation. The creation never does something to him. Rather, in every motion of the creation, he is always energizing. He is always working. In every act of good that a human creature does, God is doing good. And in every act of evil a human creature does, God is doing good. In the crucifixion, human beings did the worst evil they'd ever done in the history of the human family. And God was doing the greatest good that he had ever done in the history of the human family. Nothing catches God off guard. He's never surprised. He is working at all times with infinite serenity. And this I think is another aspect of the impassive nature of God. God is not panicking. He's not putting his hands on his head, Worrying endlessly about the fate of the creation, God is utterly serene because he is perfectly and infinitely wise and thus he knows precisely what to do in any given situation. The analogy that's used by Paul Gavriluk, a Ukrainian Orthodox theologian who wrote a very interesting book called The Suffering of the Impassible God, is that of a doctor. Now, do we want a doctor who empathizes with us in the sense of feeling exactly what our family is feeling when we're going into a dangerous operation? Fear, terror, stress? Are those the qualities that we want our doctor to have? No, they're not. But do we want our doctor to genuinely and truly care for the well-being of his patients? Do we want his uh, own identity to be deeply invested in his doing whatever he can? to the best of his ability for his patients? Absolutely, we do. We want the doctor to be in perfect control of himself and yet be truly and really devoted to the well-being of those for whom he cares. And this is the relation that God has in love with the creation. God infinitely loves the creation. And love for God is not does not mean something totally unrelated to created love. Uh, I'll talk more about the relation of the creaturely imprint to the archetype uh, in the next video, Um, but this is one of the upshots of doctrine of the divine energies, which is that because the divine energies, including love, are really made participable by the human family. Those who participate in divine love know by direct apprehension what it is for God to love. They don't know what it is for God to love to the greatest degree, because he will always be revealing new degrees. But qualitatively, they apprehend true and real divine love. They know God truly, which I think goes some way to answering the critique that the classical theistic view of divine love is cold or detached or unemotional in the negative sense. Okay, so there's our negations. And now that we've mentioned divine love, this is a perfect segue to our affirmations God is omnibenevolent. God is omniscient, omniscient. That's all knowing, omnipresent. He is uh, perfectly present at every point in space. He is perfectly present throughout the whole creation and he is totally present at every individual particle of creation. And he is omnipotent. Now. I think many people hearing these words uh, just have kind of vague associations, you know, as we all do when we hear something for the first time, or we're a beginner learning theology. We have a vague set of associations with uh, of, of particular divine capacities, with these qualities. But I want to get precise here. Take omnipotence, for example. I think when we hear the word omnipotence, what we tend to think of in our mind is God is really, 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 really powerful. You know, God can send a lightning bolt that's 10,000 trillion times more powerful than anything that has ever been seen on earth. And yeah, it, it does mean that. It does imply that. But omnipotence is something far more precise. Omnipotence is rooted in a very particular and articulated view of the nature of God, of what it means for God to exist. And when one articulates this view of what it means for God to exist, then all of the omnis flow out naturally. So let's take omnipotence, omnipotence. Potens is to have the power to do something, to be able to do something. Now a power or a capacity is something which exists in any created or uncreated subject. Okay, so if let's say I have a cup of coffee the coffee has the intrinsic capacity to warm the coffee cup. That is is a quality that is intrinsic to what it is. And when that capacity is actualized in the process of communication of heat to the coffee cup through the various molecular and subatomic processes that go on and that uh, I cannot explain. um, When that occurs, the capacity is being realized in an actuality, or in an operation. More on this in the next video. Now, God is omnipotent. He has all capacities, because everything that exists in creation, and everything that could exist, exists in him by necessity. God, according to the nature of the concept itself, is self-existent, entailing that everything it could mean for something to exist is perfectly present in him. You know, This has been articulated uh, it, on its own terms um, as its own subject elsewhere. I don't want to get too deep into what that means. All I want to do is draw the connection between that idea and the idea of omnipotence. Now because God is the only one who exists in and of himself, if the creation existed in and of itself, if it couldn't not exist, well then it would be part of God. People sometimes will then say, "Well, what about numbers? There's no possible world in which the number two uh, does not have the qualities it does. And the answer to that is that numbers exist as forms in the mind of God. Numbers are ideas and they are ideas that transcendently and perfectly and eternally exist in the mind of God, which is why they seem to share so many divine attributes. Uh, They're spaceless, timeless, uh, and so forth. Now, everything in creation exists by virtue of God's self-imprinting onto that which did not have to exist. And thus, every intrinsic capacity for any creature to do any action is rooted in God's intrinsic power to undertake that action. The power to undertake a given action or the power to be actualized in a given action, if undertake sounds like it implies too much um, will or consciousness, this also applies to inanimate objects, the capacity to be realized in a particular way, that power is something which is being constantly conferred at every moment on creatures by God, according to their natures. And their natures, what makes them what they are, exist because God, from all eternity, has an archetype of that particular creature in his mind that he is imprinting in the process of sustaining the creation. And he also has archetypes of things which he hasn't created. We say um, that the logi, or logoi, if you want to use Erasmian Greek pronunciation, logoi are those modes of participation in God's creative energies that actually bear a relation to something God has created in the actual world. There are all other there are an infinite number of creatures he possibly could have made where their archetypal principles would be called Logi if he had made them. But because he hasn't made them, because let's just say the two headed unicorn isn't an actual creature. The archetype which exists in God's mind for the two headed unicorn is not called a logos. So God has all capacities, all powers. He can do anything because he exists perfectly. Power or capacity is a quality of existence, and all existence belongs to God. And we see in this context that omnipotence is not the same kind of predication that our negations were. Our negations were stating that God transcends a particular aspect of our limited existence, whereas the omni-properties are statements that God has in a positively predicable way all of the qualities which can be known in principle by his divine self-extension. So to say that God is omniscient, let's say, God knows everything directly. To know something is a kind of union with it. Keep that in mind. To know something is to have its form appear abstractly in your mind. And as the form is the basis for its existence, that you are being united with that thing according to the power of intellect. Now, God having all formalities and all ideas, all possible creatures perfectly present inside his mind in virtue of the fact that he exists infinitely as we've just spent an an absurd amount of time repeating. That reality entails that God, in addition to being omnipotent is also omniscient. He apprehends all knowledge. Everything that it's possible to know, everything that might legitimately be called knowledge, God apprehends directly, because the form by which it is known in the most intimate possible way is a form which exists in itself in the mind of God. Therefore, God is omniscient. He knows all things. And the key point that I'm making here is that this is not a statement of transcendence in the way that the negations were statements of transcendence. Rather, it's like white light that you filter through a prism. White light is the summation of all, of the whole spectrum of colors. In white light, you're identifying that whole spectrum. You're looking at that whole spectrum. And yet, in relation to a prism, you see that spectrum according to the plenitude of its particular qualities. So we see that we use certain words in order to denote the summation of these qualities, but these qualities themselves can be known directly by the human creature, not only according to our knowledge of their created nature, but according to our knowledge of their uncreated archetype which is a mode of participation in God's creative activities or his divine energies we can't directly know the infinity of God in the way that we can directly know those things which are known by God and the reason we can't directly know the former is because when we tease out the conceptual content of what it means for God to be infinite what I just said is not a coherent proposition Same logic applies. Why is God omnipresent? Why is he in all places at once? Well, let's again clarify that when we say that God is omnipresent, we are not merely saying that God, you know, collectively, using that kind of terminology, reinforces why this is incoherent because it doesn't make sense when applied to God. Uh, We should not imagine God as this extended entity overlaying the cosmos because they have similar shapes as it were, like he's a piece of paper that you place over an egg and wrap totally around it. No, God is totally present in his entirety to the whole universe, and yet he is also totally present in his entirety to every particular particle in the universe. Note the relationship to Eucharistic theology here. That's not an accident, something we'll talk about another time. This, has, um, this helps us elucidate the nature of conscious perception. We cannot experience any quality of existence which doesn't have its source in God. As I've said, ad nauseum here. So the conscious qualities of existence, the qualitative experience, which forms the stuff of our daily life must in one way or another have its root in God. And the explanation of this is that God knows all things qualitatively, consciously, from every perspective. He has an omniperspectival point of view. He sees all things from every possible point of view. And I'm speaking both abstractly and in terms of, you know, literally in terms of sight. And it's because every possible point of view is already had by God in relation to the cosmos, that we can enter into that divine power in the daily warp and woof of our creaturely life. Because God has it already, he has the capacity to impart it to us in a regular and mathematically coherent, beautiful, elegant way. There's so much more that we could say here but i'll just finish off uh by speaking to the omnibenevolence issue Um, and i believe we actually talked about the notion of divine goodness the other day Um, we signify a thing as good because it has a close relation to its archetype a circle is good the closer it is to the ideal circle The ideal circle is an abstraction, it's a mathematical entity, and circles are measured according to their degree of conformance with that abstract archetype. Same with squares or or anything else. A chair is measured as a good chair if it fulfills the ends for which the chair was created. Those ends, the final cause of the chair, as it were, constitute the inner structure of its existence and its goodness is measured according to the degree of its correspondence with that internal structure. Well, because the archetype to which everything is supposed to correspond is God himself, God is perfectly and infinitely good. God is the archetype, he is goodness himself. He is not just good, he is the yardstick by which goodness is measured. As such, God is omnibenevolent. He is supremely and infinitely benevolent because he himself in his very life uh, is the standard by which a thing's existence and its perfection can be measured. And so, why Moses, he ascends Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, he sees the architectural pattern of the tabernacle. A tabernacle is a miniature world model. It's a structured model of the world, which symbolizes the creation in its entirety, and Moses goes up to meet God to renew the covenant, covenant to allow access to the tabernacle again. God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. Because goodness is the archetype by which God created the world and thus imprinted himself in the tabernacle. And God saw that it was good again and again, Moses tells us in Genesis chapter 1. He saw that it was good. He saw that what he created corresponded to its archetype, which was the goodness that was inherent in god so these ins refer to god insofar as he transcends any kind of boundary or limitation he is never less than anything but he is always more than everything the omnis don't refer to this kind of transcendence so much as they refer to the total summation of all knowable qualities and participable qualities that exists inherently in God. Now, these two things are obviously deeply related. To say that God has an infinite plenitude of goodnesses is to relate them. We've just stated omnibenevolence and infinity in the same breath. But there is a subtle conceptual distinction which, as dry as it might be, I think it's important for you to understand, to really grasp the way that the tradition is working out the notion of apophatic theology. So, let's get specific. God is love. Whenever somebody hears about apophatic theology, this is generally the verse that is appealed to. And it's not a stupid response. I mean, we shouldn't respond to this with disdain because quite honestly, I've seen people critique apophatic theology on this basis and the orthodox interlocutor or the one who purports to defend orthodox tradition, you know, has no coherent response at all. So we shouldn't just dismiss that as, oh, well, that's too simple. I mean, sometimes the most simple critiques are the sharpest critiques. God is love. And God is God's love is related to everything we've just described because God's love denotes his self-extension outwards in embrace of other subjects. That's why God exists in Trinity. God exists according to his Godhood, according to his intrinsic quality as God, perfectly and infinitely. That perfect and infinite existence is an existence constituted by love, and love is only coherent in a relational context. So the Father extends himself outwards, totally revealing himself in love to the Son, whom he totally knows in and through the Spirit, who shares in the communion of both. We're gonna get into uh, the specifics of the Trinitarian implications of this in the next video. So let's get into the biblical language here. So God fills all things and he's transcendent in relation to them. So the biblical language is always going to be the root and the womb of any kind of constructive theology. So constructive theology is a particular sort of approach to the divine mystery. You know, we can, we can kind of conceive um, theology in, uh, or we can conceive knowledge in Trinitarian terms, you know, direct knowledge of God corresponds to the Father is the source of the Godhead, uh, abstract archetypal knowledge of the forms that corresponds to the Son in whom all formalities are summed up, um, Uh, knowledge of the particular creatures by which the forms are instantiated contingently, that corresponds to the spirit uh, because the spirit is the one who uh, sings out the notes which exist inherently in the sun according to uh, the unique, uh, uh, according to a variety of contingent uh, modes. Uh, All knowledge in some way fits together into a Trinitarian framework, whether or not you buy that particular uh, schematic, uh, But the Bible is described by Maximus as a kind of second incarnation of the sun, or I shouldn't say second incarnation. Uh, Maximus describes the sun or the logos as triply manifest. He's manifest in the creation according to sensible qualities, you know, the whole matrix of visual, auditory uh taste, smell, etc., etc. All of those qualities are imprints in this particular mode of God the Logos, who sums up all of God's divine properties. Uh, In the Incarnation, of course, the Divine Person is, the Divine Person enhypostasizes a human nature and makes humanity his own and brings humanity into a divine mode of existence. This is obviously a unique and uh, the most exalted mode of Christ's self-disclosure, but Maximus uh, shows us that the Bible does have a unique place in all of the tradition or documents or sources for the church in identifying scripture as that third imprint of the divine logos. So language is a network of created symbols designed to make in their individuality, that is in the particular words which serve as signs of particular things, and in the complex interconnectedness existing between all of the words existing in concentric circles of wheels within wheels. You've got a word within a sentence, a sentence within a paragraph, a paragraph within a page, a page within a chapter, a chapter within a book. You've got wheels within wheels, and it's structured that way because God is structured that way. The energies are fractals. One love uh, splits open into many loves, and each one of those loves splits open into many loves, etc, etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Uh, So everything is necessarily, when you get down to brass tacks, going to be structured uh, in that way when you look carefully enough. Uh, language, Is designed by God it's not a human invention it's a gift of God Uh, it's designed by God to make the world intelligible in symbolic rational form language is a special divine gift given to the human family to facilitate that particular end we are called to grow in wisdom in relation to God and in relation to the creation. And by that wisdom, we are called to participate with God in bringing the creation from goodness to perfection, from glory to glory. And language here is significant because scripture is given to us in language. Scripture is the linguistic imprint of that divine logos. And thus it bears a unique place in the whole of the tradition of the church uh, or in the whole church Uh, In general, and I make that kind of qualifier because I want to, uh, I don't want to come down too hard in favor of, you know, scripture is part of tradition versus scripture is distinct from tradition. You know, if you look at the fathers and you look at the way that they saw scripture, it's pretty clear that scripture is distinct from tradition in one way. That is, it's the source and it's the root uh, from which all tradition flows, and yet it is the crown jewel of tradition in another way. Yeah, it's always a both and thing, but there's a both and, and in different respects. And so scripture always has this primary role in one way or another. It is the source of all of our theology. It our traditional theological formulae are rooted in one way or another in the language of the scriptures. And I call attention to this because it's not a connection which merely exists historically, as if we're narrating what went on in the past and, oh, well, Athanasius got this idea from Scripture, and then Maximus got this idea from Athanasius, so if you trace it back far enough, you'll find the Bible is the ultimate source. No, the Bible's relation to the tradition is an ongoing and present relationship. It's like the Father is the source of the Son. That's not a chronologically distant relation. It's something which exists as long as the relation itself exists. And if we lose that, If we lose the ability to not only interpret scripture in light of tradition, but also to interpret tradition in light of scripture and to arrange our Christian theology in the uh, kind of skeletal pattern that is shown for us in the scripture, that is, according to the very specific structure it's shown to us, we're going to be liable to all sorts of imbalances. Uh, So this, in many ways, is kind of the root of the problem. Uh, there was a recent book, uh, I think it was James Dolezal what was his name. Maybe I don't know if James was his first name, but it was by a reform guy. He was attempting to defend what he called classical theism. Um, really, he just meant Thomism. Um, and I'll be like straightforward with you. With you. Um, what I've read of the book is the introduction and I've read some, some other stuff he's written, articles. Um, but I'm citing it because of something incredibly striking that he said in the introduction that I have no reason to believe, and I I talked to others who are favorable to the book, and uh, apparently he doesn't walk this back, but I'm willing to be corrected. He says that scripture, because it operates in the development of covenant history through time, and because it operates in the particularity and the concreteness, I don't know if he uses the word concreteness, but particularity of the world of creatures, it is not suited to revealing the truth of divine simplicity as he understands it. Nevertheless, he understands divine simplicity in his interpretation of what that means as a cardinal doctrine of Christian Orthodoxy. This is a reformed guy, but I think it's a perfect example of what it looks like when you have your tradition unmoored from the scriptures and you cease to see the relation between the scriptures and tradition. Such that the scriptures can no longer act as a clarifying lens by which you interpret the tradition. So I think that is very clear in scripture that there are certain divine that the divine qualities are not reducible to each other. They're coextensive. They mutually imply each other, but they are not identical in every respect to each other. Topic for another day. Um, But if God, as described by a particular doctrine, is not suited to be revealed in this quality in and through the creation or in and through scripture, then one has to question whether we are indeed speaking of the one who created the world and wrote the scriptures. God created the world as an instrument by which others might know him, as a theater for his self-disclosure. And he invented language for the very same purpose that we might grow in wisdom our knowledge of the creation and of God by the tool of language. And so people who say, well, Scripture is necessarily imperfect in revealing God. It must have mistakes because it's written in human language. It's a fundamentally wrongheaded approach from the start. People who say, God's most important and essential qualities, the most important doctrines aren't really suited in their structure to be revealed by scripture and in creation are missing the point. Creation is the best possible instrument for God's self-disclosure because that's what he made it. So, you know, it's my channel, I go on on as long as I so please. Sometimes I think I go on longer than it's really necessary. It is what it is. So let's take a, a look, and this will be brief, at the various biblical texts, which I think are essential here. Okay, Isaiah 55-9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. First Kings 8:27. 27 Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Now this is a important passage, because we think of the doctrine of divine incorporeality that God has no body. And I think people assume that this is an eminently biblical doctrine. And I'm a defender of the doctrine, properly understood, but just work with me here. People assume it's an eminently biblical doctrine. Then you ask, well, where exactly does the Bible teach that? And you're going to come up short, uh, because the best shot is pretty much uh, going to be uh, Deuteronomy, where Deuteronomy says, you saw no form. But if you look at the context in the Pentateuch and indeed in the New Testament, uh, it's clear that Israel saw no form, not because God has no form, but because God concealed his form in the divine darkness for their own safety, which is another reason to distinguish the divine darkness from the divine light and see the divine light rather than the darkness as the ultimate end of what is known by Moses and the prophets. Uh, It is said in Numbers, Moses saw the form of the Lord note the interesting convergence between the notion of form of the lord and the classical philosophical and theological use to which the concept of the platonic forms are put there's a convergent in not only conceptually but in the text and wording of scripture between the form of the lord and the goodness of the lord there's all sorts of amazing stuff going on there what one can find in scripture is statements that god extends infinitely beyond whatever constraints the creation has. The creation in being the creation has limitations. God fills up the creation to the brim. He's infinitely thick and has the possibility to fill it up to the breaking point. And yet that doesn't even capture a drop in the vast ocean of his divine infinity. And that is meant by incorporeality. It does not mean God has less than a body, means God has infinitely more than a body. As such, in this very passage, we read of God's self-disclosure in a visible form. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. You know, I heard Kurt Wise, who's a brilliant, very talented creationist geologist, but he speaks about the, the glory of the Lord, and he says, well, they're not seeing God, they're because God can't be seen, but this text says they saw God, so we have to come to terms with the text. We shouldn't you know, just privilege one set of texts over another, both have to be interpreted in light of each other. So the the idea that we interpret the uh, unclear text in light of the clear text is just a a massive cop-out. So uh, God is higher than the earth. His ways transcend our ways. He fills all things and yet extends infinitely beyond them. And even so, he can be known. And he can be known in the crudest possible ways. At least in relation to what we generally think of as crude, C.S. Lewis made this point. Uh, God is a fair bit less spiritual than we might imagine Him to be. The most intimate act of divine-human communion that He ordained takes place in eating. Which I mean, think concretely about what it means to eat. You know, your your mouth is making all sorts of disgusting noises. You've got the digestive system. I mean, it's a very corporeal, material, and what we might think of as crude process. But it just goes to show, as God said, my ways are not your ways. And in some ways, he transcends our ways by being more like the creation and communicating himself more intimately through created means than we would have imagined or rather, or possibly even liked. Exodus 24, nine to 10, This is where Moses uh, leads Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, a priestly family, and then the 70 elders of Israel who represent the divine council. They go up to the mountain of God, and they eat a feast which uh, anticipates the Eucharist. Moses sprinkles blood on them, and he says, this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus quotes this very text in the Gospels, speaking of the Eucharist, saying this is the blood of the covenant given for you, uh, which renders us a very important text when we think about what it means for Jesus to say, if you see me, you've seen the Father. And note that it's at the Last Supper where this whole kind of network of ideas and narrative patterns is going on where he actually has that conversation. An interesting point that I that just popped into my head just now. Uh, they saw the God of Israel. You can't get clearer than that, folks. I mean, Genesis 18 also says Abraham saw the Lord, but you really can't get clearer than that. They saw the God of Israel. That means that the capacity to see is in certain ways disposed to the knowledge of God. Now, we should be clear, and we'll get into this in the next video, that nature is not identical to supernature, that our sight is a created imprint of the divine capacity of sight by which God experiences the divine light and that we experience the divine light, what we see the God of Israel, when God fortifies our natural sight and communicates to and through it his uncreated operations, among which are the uncreated operation or power or capacity of divine sight. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is one of the things that we sing during the eucharist during the communion of the faithful or taste and see that the lord is good and note the conjunction here taste and see to eat is the most intimate possible act of communion with another person in this symbolic sense because you, if you are what you eat you eat the same thing you become part of the same body that's why weddings you become one flesh you become mutually interior to your spouse well how is that celebrated by a feast It is one of those rituals which was absolutely pervasive through antiquity, and it is still pervasive to this day. There is a wedding feast. A mutual interiority in the body is signified by a mutual feasting. And because it is not merely the joining of two individuals, but the joining of their respective families together in the context of the larger human body and, God willing, in the body of Christ, so both families are invited to come to the wedding feast and be incorporated into one another. Note the, the fact that this act of communion, this act of becoming interior to God as God becomes interior to us, is that which facilitates our seeing that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It is by tasting that we know directly the qualities of God. As we become interior to him and he to us, we apprehend directly his divine qualities. It is in that apprehension that in that knowledge of divine quality that we receive the capacity to know god in visible form and thus we take refuge in him say six five seven you see another instance of seen the king the lord of hosts we also have touched the coal which the seraphim uh, or which the seraph takes from the altar is lit with fire from the altar and this is the heavenly temple and this is the divine fire this is the uncreated divine glory uh, and the uncreated divine glory touches Isaiah's lips note again the relationship to sight here uh, not how, just how extensively God is known according to sensible language there's really no uh, stepping back from that sensible language and we also see here the way to interpret those passages would say that God cannot be seen when the scriptures say that God cannot be seen It's not saying something ontological as if um, God being God has no visible qualities. It's rather saying that God being God is infinitely dangerous. And so that's why whenever there's an instant scripture of someone who sees God, um, it actually takes place in the context of a death and resurrection experience or paradigm or narrative. Um, Sometimes that's a little bit under the surface, but actually when you start to look for it, it becomes a lot more clear. And then Jeremiah 31. This is about the new covenant. This has a close relationship to the Eucharist, which we've just discussed. The new covenant is all about the dwelling of God with man in the new temple. Uh, we've talked about that elsewhere. won't go into it more than we need to. Uh, key point here, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Notice the language here which is uniquely suitable to subjective or mental categories. You have the idea of knowledge, that's the most obvious, but it's in the context of speaking of knowing the Lord that we hear a word about God remembering sin no more. What is it to remember something? Well, to remember something is to call attention in one's mind to a particular quality of that thing's existence. Sometimes we're referring to remembering the past, but we, memory doesn't actually always have that sense of looking back in the past. We might remember, uh, oh, your name is X. I just remembered that about you. Uh, or remembering in scripture often means taking into account. We call that quality to mind and we act on the basis of what that quality implies. So we know the Lord. We come to apprehend him as he gives us the capacity to do so supernaturally by the act of deification. But this knowledge of the Lord only takes place in the context of a particular sort of divine knowledge of us. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In Christ, the crucified and risen Christ, our sins are forgiven. And because God knows us in Christ, he remembers our sin no more, and we know the Lord just a little tidbit here, not actually directly relevant to the main subject of the video, but hey, it's my channel. And uh, we've discussed that in my video on justification. So would you believe that I'm just now getting to the central thesis? This is why I split it into multiple videos. So my central thesis, apophatic theology is a qualifier on our articulation of divine perfection, on what it means for God to exist perfectly which is designed to protect the biblical revelation of divine sovereignty and infinity you know it's kind of a a network of logical reasoning that serves to underscore and undergird that fundamental truth given to us by the scriptures that god is Perfectly sovereign, that he is impassive, that nothing acts upon him, but that he is always engaged. He's never caught by surprise. He always has a plan. It protects the integrity of the cataphatic rather than undermining the cataphatic, and that's kind of the oh, Bush truth bomb, you know, or whatever. You know, it, it's it's one of those things which I think it isn't as controversial as some people uh, imagine it to be. Uh, It has a pretty serious history in in 20th century Orthodox theology, but the idea that apophaticism uh, totally rules out cataphaticism in the tradition and theology of the Orthodox Church has kind of taken on a life of its own, uh, and it's acquired this almost meme status. And I, don't, I, I, I genuinely don't mean to be condescending or insulting. I actually don't have anybody in particular in mind when I'm thinking of this. Um, I'm remembering some of my own early perceptions um, of orthodox tradition and the process of acquiring what I would take to be a more balanced understanding of the tradition and the meaning of apophatic theology. Um, and one of the key uh, events in helping me to process that was actually reading Palamas himself, um, Reading Palamas is quite a different experience than reading about Palamas by those who are identified as the Neoplatonists. Now, I'm not an anti neopolymite Some people use neopolymite as if it's just like a curse word. Oh, well, he's a Neoplatonist. It's like people say, oh, he's a Hegelian. You go, oh well, I don't. Who gives an F if he's a Hegelian? Is what he's saying true or false? Oh, he's. It's the same. Is he a leftist? Is he? Oh, he's a conservative. He's a libertarian. Huh, he's a neocon. He's a Hegelian. Uh, he's a ne- neopolomite. You know you. Can, you can call people all sorts of names, but the fundamental question is always going to be, is it true or false? So rant over. Uh, we should remember, and I've got on the right an icon of Palamas, uh, and I'll mention Ath- Athanasius, who's on the left uh, just a few seconds. Uh, we should remember that, that the Palamite controversy does not begin by Barlaam lambasting apophatic theology. Barlaam is not claiming that uh, we can know all of God's attributes positively, that we can know God rationally and directly through reason alone. This is sometimes the perception because Barlaam exalts Hellenistic philosophy over the tradition of the church and over the ascetic life of the church. But the reason that he does that is because the kind of thing which is known by the ascetic life of the church no longer has any basis for existing in Barlaam's metaphysics. Barlaam was not a cataphatic theologian. In fact, he was a hyper-apophatic theologian. The whole Palamite controversy began when Barlaam wrote a criticism of the Filioque as it was being taught in the Western Church, as the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Barlaam said, well, this is an error because that concerns the inner life of God which is utterly unknowable. And Palamas wrote and said, well, I agree it's an error, but there is a truth about the inner life of God, the Trinitarian life of God, that is actually revealed to us through the operations and which we can know directly through the experience of the church and articulate symbolically in the theological language of the church. And this is a a pattern that we see consistently in some of the major controversies of church history. Uh, Palamas kind of, uh, is the Athanasius in the Barlamite controversy. Uh, not only in his being the good guy, though he was that, but in the ones who protected the integrity of the true knowledge of the uncreated life of God through Jesus Christ. I'll make another video about this sometimes. The energies are a Christocentric, Logocentric doctrine. Okay, they, they cannot be understood apart from the Trinity, apart from the Logos the operations of the Father through the Son and the Spirit. Athanasius was critiquing a theological position which stated that God, as God was so unlike anything else that the logos did not know God and as such could not truly reveal God. Uh, Arius held that uh, unknowability, was itself identical with the essence of God. And the Logos, it's very interesting the way that he does this. The Logos reveals God in Arius's mind because the Logos constitutes the initial distinction of creature from creator. And in that distinction, one sees the unbridgeable chasm which exists between creature and creator. And as the Logos is on the creaturely side of that chasm, what Christ as the incarnate Logos reveals to us is the existence and profundity of the chasm itself. I mean, it's a, it's a, very, it's a very clever way to try to say that Christ is still revealing God, but ultimately it's, it's not defensible from a New Testament perspective. Um, Athanasius defends the Christian gospel by identifying Jesus as consubstantial with the Father, and thus truly able to reveal those qualities which are intrinsic to the Father. And Palamas, by the doctrine of the divine energies, elucidates the mode in which those qualities can be revealed and known to us. They are qualities predicated of Father, Son, and Spirit. They uh, are intrinsic as personal modes of existence. They are actualizations of potentials which are intrinsic to the essence. So that's my thesis. This has been a lot longer than I intended and I know I say that all the time, but it's it's really true today. I didn't expect this to be this long at all. Um, So there'll be part two, I suspect maybe a part three as well. Uh, where we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of, can you believe we haven't gotten into the nitty-gritty, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of the very precise logic of apophatic theology, uh, what it actually means in a traditional sense. So thank you so much for listening. Um, You are an ascetic saint yourself, if you have made it the whole way through. Um, Remember to like and subscribe if you indeed uh, found pleasure in enduring this, uh, and do consider contributing to my Patreon. Thank you so much. Bye Bye.